This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What if you could become a better person, not by working harder, but by taking one small step a day? And not because you're a bad person now, but because there's something inside you that's ready for more. How to be a better person gives you one tiny step a day you can take to be the person you want to be. My mission? To help you live your best life. Hi, and welcome to How to Be a Better Person. I'm Kate, your host and author of the book, How to Be a Better Person. This week on the podcast, I'm shining a spotlight on anxiety, which was already a go-to emotional state for a lot of us before the pandemic. And now it's something that's moved on in and made itself at home. I find it's really tough to come from an open-hearted place when you're in an anxiety swirl. So this week and next, let's see what we can do to at least find some ease around the edges. To help with that end, today I'm interviewing the fabulous Lee Medeiros. Lee is the author of The One Minute Writer, a developmental editor, and a creativity coach. All these cool and amazing accomplishments are not why I've asked Lee here today. I reached out to her because she's always been very open on social media about her experiences of living with heightened anxiety, specifically panic disorder with agoraphobia, which is basically a fear of being helpless in a situation where you're unable to escape. In fact, Lee is currently working on a memoir and a book of essays about living with and learning to accept anxiety, and I hope that she could share some of her hard-won wisdom on living with anxiety with us. Lee, welcome! Hi, Kate! (laughs) So great to have you here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. So let's dive right in. How did you come to be writing a memoir about living with anxiety? Good question. I... I really love personal storytelling, and I finally got to the age where I feel like I had enough accumulated experience to sort of talk about something particular, something that, you know, a memoir can be very daunting. It's a big project, at least for someone like me. My, my projects have been screenplays and sort of nonfiction how-to books. So a large form narrative was kind of daunting for me. But I kind of got to this point where I felt like, okay, I've had nearly 30 years of living with anxiety. I've had a number of personal challenges that are, you know, sort of unique and yet universally relatable. And so what happened is I, you know, a few years back, my husband and, and best friend, you know, this, they both got diagnosed with cancer and I supported them both in different ways. My husband more specifically through a year of, you know, pretty grueling treatment. Um, and after he came out of that, he had a condition that prevented him from going back to his regular gig, which was carpentry. And he got this opportunity to become a caretaker of a historic mansion slash museum. And we moved into the wing of this big old house. And it happened to be the same month that my best friend was dying in hospice. And so after this four years of sort of caretaking them and, and the other personal challenges, 
you know, I moved into this place right at a time when I wanted nothing more than to hide in a cave. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I found myself in this very public place. And it, we've got educational tours and weddings and concerts and art camps, not to mention uh, painters and gutter guys. And it was it was somewhat tragicomical, you know, this this <laughs> feeling of like really wanting to escape the world, but finding myself here. And so the book, you know, it's it's years of accumulated experience, but really contained to this, this year of living in a public space and how I was trying to navigate, you know, grief as well as, you know, agoraphobia and things like that. And so it's really about a fish out of water, a, a fish out of water who's trying to heal herself. <laughs> right. I love that you said fish out of water, because when you were saying you wanted to move into a cave and you ended up in this public space, I was thinking, oh, you kind of sounds like you ended up in a fishbowl. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how it felt. It's very, it's wonderful. It's absolutely beautiful here. But there is not one window that I can be near or stand at without seeing humans, seeing buildings, seeing something happening, you know, and I just, I very much felt like I was in a fishbowl. Right. You mentioned that you've felt like you've lived with anxiety for 30 years, and then you went through this very intense period of four years. And I'm curious, in your experience, is anxiety something that's hardwired? Or is it the natural result of circumstances? Or is it some sort of interplay of the two? Mm. In my case, I would say it's a result of both. I have, you know, my parents and some of my extended family have or have had in the past clinical anxiety. So genetically, I was predisposed. But then I also had family, my family is very wonderful, but I will say they modeled certain behaviors that contributed to my anxiety. Things like learning that you don't rock the boat, learning that you have to quote unquote, let things go that bother you. Mm. Don't say anything that would make anybody feel bad. You know, so all of those things contributed to this idea that other people's behaviors, experiences, feelings were more important than my own. And it took me a long time, probably into my 30s before I could really hold boundaries. You know, it was this long practice of being in a lot of uncomfortable situations where I was, I felt taken advantage of, and just, you know, little by little having to say, no, that's not okay. And, you know, navigating a fear of conflict, plus my fear of being taken advantage of. And so over time, the boundaries got stronger and stronger. And that's huge because when you don't have boundaries, you're affected by other people's energy and behavior. So for me personally, I would say that anxiety was both, you know, something hardwired and, you know, sort of upbringing slash circumstance. But I think, you know, it's a really, it's one of those things that depends on the person. There's so many ways that anxiety can manifest, but my, my, I suspect for many people, it would be a combo of both things. Mm-hmm. You're a really creative person. And I think a lot of times anxiety can keep us from doing the things that require creativity. You know, it can try and tell you to just stick with the plan and stay safe. How do you see the relationship between anxiety and creativity? Mm, That's such a great question. That's a hard one for me because I think creativity and anxiety are words that we use to describe these broad umbrella concepts. Um, And there's so many facets to both of them, which means that any individual person is going to have vastly different experiences of both of those things. But that being said, broadly speaking, I think about the fact that there's kind of two parts to creativity. There's the act of doing it when you're, you know, literally bringing something into form, you're taking nothing, you're making something. 
And then there's the practice, the behaviors, the habits that surround the doing of it. And so if we're just talking about the act of being creative and how that relates to anxiety, I think most people would feel that that's a beneficial relationship in the sense that creativity is known to lower cortisol levels and bring more calm. But if we're talking about the rest of it, kind of what surrounds the act, then I think you're talking about, you know, trying to figure out the circumstances that help creativity to blossom. And to be frank, that can be really hard because a lot of us, you know, have time management issues or issues with procrastination. And of course, there's also things like poverty or lack of access, you know, so Mm-hmm. I think you're right in the sense that anxiety can keep us from being creative. Me personally, I'm a big fan of being creative in small doses. So literally one minute at, t- at a time, you know, I think spare time is such a privilege for so many people. I think a lot of people are tired, especially right now. A lot of people are overwhelmed. So if you can set a very small goal, whether it's a minute, five minutes, 10, like really break it down into tiny, tiny bits and try to just do the tiniest amount you can do every day, it builds a muscle and it gets easier and easier to kind of slip in and out of creative practice. And so I hope that answered it to an extent. You know, I think they're very closely linked, anxiety and creativity, and it's just, it's so nuanced for so many people. Definitely. I feel like, unfortunately, I almost have to get a little bit anxious in order to actually sit down and do something creative. Mm. In, and, uh, in the sense that you feel anxious so that, com- that you're using anxiety as fuel to get your... Yeah, yeah. I need to yeah. feel like, oh my God, if I don't get this done, I'm not going to turn it in and it's going to be embarrassing and I better sit down and, <laughs> you yeah. know. I think that's a great way to use anxiety. I I have always been sort of a procrastinator if I don't have that outside accountability of, oh my God, the deadline, or oh my God, I said I'd give it to this person, or I paid for mm-hmm. this consult and I've got to get it to them by this date. And and so there is that little bit of fear that that drives the creativity forward. And it sounds like, you know, I mean, this is something that we can talk more about later, but it does sound like you're using anxiety in a positive way to mm-hmm. further the goals that you have, you know, your creative goals. Right. Yeah, that is something I wanted to ask you about. Let's let's pivot there. Do do you see there being upsides to anxiety for you personally? Yes, yes. I tell you what, I've never felt so equipped to handle the circumstances of 2020. (laughs) (laughs) I I have joked with friends that that this year is like an anxious person's time to shine. (laughs) Um, You know, we're like we're we're fear experts. We've got this. You know. Um, So for me, as a person who's dealt with anxiety for, like I said, nearly 30 years, I I didn't have to go from feeling totally calm, totally la-di-da, and then panic when the pandemic hit, right? Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, I was already kind of there. I had this sort of undercurrent of uncomfortability. And so I could really roll with it. You know, I just remember thinking, God, like, I was kind of made for this, you know? Um, So (laughs) all of that is to say, you know, I think, I think when you have anxiety, your natural first reaction is to try to get rid of it because it feels so bad. Mm -hmm. But like we were just talking about, there there is a place for it. And it's not actually, for me, this is obviously a, a big conversation, but it's not a thing I think that we can get rid of. It's a thing that we live with. It's a thing we can reduce. We can, yes, avoid it if we want to avoid certain triggers. But really, we can work with it when it arises. It can be an incredible guide. You know, when we feel anxiety, it's part of how our system is responding to something that feels unsafe to us. 
And whether or not that thing is actually unsafe is a different story, but that's what our body is trying to tell us. It's like, I feel unsafe right now. Mm. So if we could use uh, the process for me, I think the process of self-inquiry to get Mm -hmm. under the surface of what's making us afraid, that can really lead to profound shifts and massive personal growth. So as far as the upside to anxiety, that, that to me, not only is it one of those things where if you're feeling anxiety, you can be well prepped for something that's difficult because you're sort of in, if you want to consider it practice, you're kind of in practice for the anxiety, but, but more so you can also use that to create um, growth in your life. You know, you can, you can make it work for you. Mm. What about on a collective level? Do you think there's some upside to anxiety, which feels like it's becoming more and more pervasive? Um, You know, maybe in the past, we tended more towards depression as a society, you know, the era of listening to Prozac and all that. And now it's like we've evolved into more of an anxiety fueled culture. And I'm just curious, do you feel like is it a response to something or could it be serving some higher purpose that we could latch on to? Well, first of all, I love your take on that as how we, as a society, had a more trend, maybe, if you want to use that word, toward depression, and now we're trending toward anxiety. And I think that's really interesting. And and actually, I do think that is it is a response. You know, I think, I, personally, I, you know, again, I don't want to keep saying this, but over the course of 30 years, you know, it's a, it, things have changed culturally around how we view mental illness. And in the beginning, I really gravitated toward the wellness industry for a very long time because I didn't want to feel afraid. I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. I wanted the tools and there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that we are right now, collectively, you know, we're facing the climate crisis. We're in a global pandemic. We have rampant systemic racism, poverty. Um, And to me, fear is the appropriate response to those things. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's appropriate right now to tell people to stop being afraid in a way. And so I've really changed my self messaging around not learning to live without fear, but learning to live with fear to to use fear, as we talked about earlier, to one's benefit. But collectively speaking, I think this anxiety is kind of like a canary in a coal mine because honestly we 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 kind of should be scared right now there are things that are scary and this is the natural response so i think the anxiety is kind of a precursor to uh and a response to all of these things that are happening and and it basically lets us know individually and collectively that things need to change Right. Hopefully it can get us into action. Exactly. It's a great it's a, a, a you know feeling anxious if you can get beyond the debilitating part of it is an excellent way to catalyze you into action. Ooh, catalyze. What a nice word. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a takeaway you can share something listeners can go and do the next time they're feeling anxious? Definitely. I I had, uh, you know, I have a hard time boiling down to one thing, but I'll mention a couple of things if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. I think do the opposite of what anxiety tells you to do which is to speed up. So when you feel anxious, you know, you're often it could be your heart's racing, your mind's racing, and that then tells your body to hurry up, you know, do the thing faster, drive the car faster, you know, walk faster, call someone, run around, grab things, you know, whatever, whatever the speed, the speed pieces. So 
if you can recognize that you're in the anxious state and you can fight your natural instinct to speed up and instead drop your shoulders, stop your body, put your hand on your heart, take a deep breath and just try to slow yourself down. I think that could be really helpful. Sometimes, depending on this goes into more of nervous system stuff, there's there's science around it. Sometimes if you're in a different, you know, state, it might actually help you to speed up like going for a run. We don't have time to get into all of that. But if you if you can be aware of the type of anxiety you're feeling and the types of ways that you can move it out of your body, I think that's a, a really good thing. And then another thing I would say for folks is to plan ahead and to keep tools, whether they're in your pocket, in your you know purse or wallet, just, um, you know, some of the things that I have are, I have kind of an emergency stash of medication. I have um, a sheet of affirmations, things that I can sort of pull out and read that are reminders when my when I'm just losing my mind about something that I can refocus. Oh, yeah, this is true. This is a true thing. Um, I have things that are like stones I can just hold in my hand and squeeze really hard. Mm. And so sometimes having those anxiety, t- like an anxiety toolkit on you before you get into that state prepping ahead of time, it can really help you because once you're in anxiety, it's hard to do that stuff. And then the last thing I would say is to to just work on self-talk. You know, I catch myself saying all the time, you're okay, you're okay. And what I recognize is that there are parts of me that are more mature or more wise than other parts. And often the anxious parts of me are younger parts or less developed parts. And, and that me saying to myself, you're okay, is kind of tapping into that wiser, more mature part of myself to oversee the other part and just remember, like, I've got you, you're okay, you're okay. And, um, and it really does help to, to kind of talk to yourself in that way. And, and it just brings a a wider perspective than that one moment that you're so focused on. Lee, you're so smart. And I just think you're so great. I think where you're can, so great. So thank you. <laughs> Tell me, where can people who'd like to connect with you go find you? Well, I'd absolutely love to connect to folks. And if they want, they can go to my website, which is my name, and I will spell it. It's a port, It's Portuguese. L-E-I-G-H. Lee is my first name. And my last name, Medeiros, M-E-D-E-I-R-O-S, LeeMedeiros.com. And there's a contact page. They're welcome to email me and say hi if they'd like. And then um, I'm on Instagram at Lee underscore Madeiras. And I'm on Twitter at Lee underscore Madeiras underscore. So um, yeah, I can't promise great content. <laughs> I just, I post a lot of like, as you may know, beach finds, you know, I, I'm a budding naturalist. So I post a lot of like dead things and beach finds and sea glass. <laughs> and I, but I do tell stories and I do talk about the writing piece from time to time. So, um, but yeah, I'd love, I'd love to connect with your, with your folks. I absolutely love this podcast and what you're doing. And I'm really grateful to be here. And I hope that something I've said today was helpful. Oh, Lee, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to How to Be a Better Person. Our theme song is Left for Deadish by Junior85. The podcast is mixed by Sound Advice Strategies. If you liked what you heard in this episode, share it with someone you think would like it too. Your voice matters. Also, How to Be a Better Person has an official newsletter that sends the past seven episodes, a sneak peek of the week ahead, and one well-chosen meme to your inbox every Saturday morning. Sign up at beabetterpersonpodcast.com and click on Get Podcast News. 
I also love to hear from listeners. I mean, I love it. Send me an email by clicking on the Contact Kate button at BeABetterPersonPodcast.com. Tweet me at Kate Han, K-A-T-E-H-A-N. Or find me on Instagram at Kate Hanley Author. I look forward to connecting with you. 